and welcome. Today, myself and Jonah are your two historic presenters, and here is episode eight of the Historic Present podcast. Jonah. Hello. Hello. Okay, and so for today's history section of the episode, we welcome back a very special guest who was, in fact, the first ever historian to appear on the Historic Present podcast, and we'll go down in the Historic Present history books if there are to ever be one. Um, welcome back, historian and novelist Guy Walters. Hello, Guy. Hello, guys. How are you doing? All right. Yeah, good. Thank you. And yourself? And uh, a happy birthday, Charlie, for the other day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I got your message. I was brilliant. Oh, I was, oh, nice birthday present as well. Oh, <laughs> you poor man. You've been given my book. Hello. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely give it a read. Definitely. I'm reading another one at the moment, but um, definitely get that read soon. Um, Jonah? Okay. So, in today's episode, we are going to be looking at the final days of World War II, the final days of the Nazi rule in Germany and the final days of the Nazi party on the face of planet Earth as a whole and how the last Nazi officers were dealt with. So, Charlie, take it away. What What is the picture looking like towards the end of 1945? And... Well, yeah, so the main the main topic of discussion today, we're going to be discussing the Nuremberg trials. These were um, the first and best known uh, of the trials that was one of the major war criminals before uh, the International Military Tribunal and was described as the greatest trial in history by Sir Norman Burkett, one of the British judges present throughout. But we will move on to that a bit later. Firstly, we're going to discuss the final days of the Fuhrer bunker. Um, what was going on, um, who was down there, and the eventual suicides um, of Hitler and some of the um, top dogs in the Nazi party, which ultimately led to the denazification of Germany. What is the Fuhrer so bunker, Charlie? The Fuhrer, well, the Fuhrer bunker was um, a, a large complex under the Reich Chancellery uh, in Berlin that was, um, it, it was effectively Hitler's um, bunker um, if uh, Berlin was to ever come under attack, which at this point it was starting to, to come under attack from uh, the Soviets. Um, so, Guy, I'm just going to ask you, um, at which point uh, do you think Hitler knew that the game was up? Uh, it's very hard to say because, of course, he always kind of presented this incredibly sort of bold and confident front that somehow everything's going to be turned around at the last minute. Um, and, you know, he would look at history and sort of previous leaders and go, well, that happened to Frederick the Great. You know, everything turned around for him. It'll turn around for me. I'm divinely inspired. But I think that really by, uh, uh, you know, sort of March, he, March 45, he is absolutely aware that that. You know, the, the the Red Army, as you say, is you know on Berlin, on top of Berlin. There's fighting going on in the streets. Um, it, it, you know, people are being raped. It's it's armies are not appearing, and he he's he may be deluded, but he, even he realizes that you know the, the game is up. So I mean, this is I mean the the film that people want to watch if they want to see a fantastic portrayal of the last days. Of the Third Reich is of course downfall, yeah. uh, yes. which yeah. you guys have probably. Have you guys seen it? Well, we've I seen some of the some funny scenes actually. They make. Well, you may. Have, I mean, everyone knows it, of course, through the kind of 
viral, you know, yeah. video yes, of, yes, of yeah. having his meltdown with his generals, and then that being transposed with other other things. But it, it is worth watching it, because it is really accurate. I mean, there, there's not really one historian I know of who has an issue with that film. And normally historians have massive issues with films and sort of go, oh, but you know, they they got the colour of the pencils wrong or something. But no, th this is um this is a really really great film and it's worth watching. And and you what is really captured in that is this sort of um it's it's the sense of panic going through this bunker and just to repeat the bunker was a pretty big place yes, you know when you talk about the Führer bunker you know it's easy to think about just like a like a little concrete office underneath you know 20 30 feet below ground it's a big big two-story network of, of tunnels like the size of underground you know car parks you know it's it's a big old place and uh, you know it's self-sustaining and self-supporting for for quite a long time. You have a lot of people down there, and yeah. it gets more and more chaotic. And as you say, the Nazi bigwigs are there. So you've got Goebbels down there, you've yeah. got Martin Bormann down there, you've got all these very very crucial figures, and and, and you know that becomes Hitler's world, and not much more. No, exactly, and and. Obviously, towards the end of the war, I'm not sure the exact date of the suicides, but obviously Goebbels, um, as well as his, as well as as well as his wife Magda Goebbels and their six children, all bit into cyanide capsules and killed themselves. Eva Braun and Hitler were next, and at, at this point, um, you know, Karl Dönitz, um, whether unbeknown to him, um, at this point is now in charge of um, the Nazi Party. And the Red Army uh, have, have circled Berlin and have placed their, their Soviet flag on the Reichstag and you know, the game is officially up. So we move to you know, the, the trials um, of the, the, the main Nazi perpetrators. And um, when Stalin, um, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt met, um, in late 1943, this is before um, you know what had happened, but it was clear that the tide of war was turning towards the Allies, and Stalin proposed um, executing 50,000 to 100,000 German staff officers in a very Stalin sort of um, school of thought, just kill everyone that um, opposed him, and. Well, why do you think, Guy, why do you think Stalin sort of thought that this was the right thing to do? And why, and why Churchill and Roosevelt were sort of um, sceptical of it? Well, you're absolutely right. This took place at the Tehran conference. And, and Stalin had said, I think probably with a certain amount of jocularity, he had said, we're just going to kill the top 50,000. And, and I think that Roosevelt, and this took place after dinner, this conversation. So one assumes that the three men may have had a little wee bit to drink. And, uh, and 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 Roosevelt somewhat jocularly replied, you know, in the same spirit, and went, "Oh well, why don't we just make it forty nine thousand instead?" Um, and Churchill was kind of appalled by this because he he didn't think that this was a sort of laughing matter. You you might have expected Churchill to be a bit more sort of um, uh, uh, have a bit more levity about it, but I think that he strongly felt that actually justice needed to be seen to be done, and actually just going around slaughtering people you know, was the kind of Stalinist way. And that probably really wasn't, you know, why we were fighting this war. I mean, that's one of the ironies, of course, is that, you know, we sided with a with a, with a vile dictator in order to beat another vile dictator. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but that, that's, I know, outside the remit of today. But I, I think that it, 
there was also something called the Moscow Declaration in 1943 that promised that the Allies would hunt down these people to the up to the ends of the earth and bring them to justice. Now that declaration obviously was just in many ways just you know fine words, but it was intended to uh, uh, provide those in countries occupied by the Third Reich at least some sort of hope that something was going to be done about these people who were. Uh, kind of decimating their lands and killing their families and you know and 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 gassing them and so on and so it was it was dead to give hope to those in the occupied countries but of course you know towards the end of the war and and when the war's over in Europe in May 45 suddenly there's a realization as as of, of the sheer volume of criminality um you know you're going to have to have a, like 100,000 manhunts if you want to find yeah you know, all, 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 the, all the criminal elements of the Nazi regime, maybe minimum 100,000. Um, and I've got the war crimes list. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's about as thick, it's about four or five inches thick of closely typed A4 bound together, you know, and that's anybody from Adolf Hitler down to someone who's kind of, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, done something a little bit naughty, like wound yeah. someone, whatever. But yeah. I mean, the point is, is that, you have this enormous criminal enterprise and what are the allies going to do about it? And of course, that's what leads to Nuremberg. Yes. Okay, well, Charlie, well, let's get on to the Nuremberg trials itself. So in the end, in all at Nuremberg, 199 defendants were trialed. So nowhere near this 50,000 planned by Stalin. Um, so let's shift our attention to October the 6th, 1945 where, Charlie, the yes. Nuremberg trials really begin. So, take from Yeah, that's right. Um, obviously, before that, there had to be a judging panel decided and prosecutors and obviously a, a defence counsel for um, those who were accused. Um, and there were 24 um, accused for a variety of things. So one, participation in a common plan or conspiracy for the accomplishment of a crime against peace, planning, initiating and waging wars of aggression and other crimes against peace, participating in war crimes, and worst of all, crimes against humanity. So can I just come in here? Yeah, yeah. Crimes against humanity was a, was, a, was, a, was a new crime. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like the idea. I mean, we think of crimes against humanity today as a sort of it trips off the tongue very easily. We, we recognize it to what it is. The idea of a crime against humanity had, had never really kind of existed in any real legal sense until Nuremberg. And I think just to go back a little bit on what you're saying, first of all, that Nuremberg was a tribunal and not a trial. Now, that sounds very trivial, but a tribunal is more of a military affair. So this was a military court. This wasn't a civil court like where you and I would go to or, you know, or a criminal court. This was a military court. And and nothing like this had ever been tried. It, it was in, in absolutely radical. And also you've got the French, the German, French, American, British and Russian legal systems which are obviously, you know, very different in many ways, all having to work together in one court. And of course, you've got a lot of problems, you know, with, with, with the way, you know, the Soviets don't take evidence in the same way as the Americans might, or the French don't take, you know, have the same processes as, as the Americans or the British. So it was a very, very radical thing. And the, the tribunal, when you're talking about the 24 defendants, that is the kind of main tribunal we're talking about. And as you say, yeah. there were other trials that took place at Nuremberg and more defendants, and there were other trials going on 
you know, throughout the 40s and 50s in Germany. But the, the one we're talking about today is, I suspect, the major one with all the bigwigs in it, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, obviously, we have Orman, Gurnitz. Oh, no, Borman wasn't there. Borman had disappeared. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, Bor- sorry. Borman was not there. No, he was convicted yeah. in absentia. That's right. Correct. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, obviously, Goering was there, committed, uh, sentenced to death. But obviously, it's on a cyanide capsule the night before. Um, Keitel, Krupp, Neurath, von Papen, uh, Ribbentrop, Rosenberg, Schatt, uh, Speer, Stryker, all these guys that, you know, members of, um, you know, these, these are the top guys of the Nazi party, members of the SS, the SA, um, the general staff and high command, as well as the SD. Um, and he, and obviously, as you mentioned, these this is a radical point in history. These guys being um, at this tribunal for crimes against humanity and other um, and other, and other yeah, crimes. Not all of them were sentenced to death, which is a common misconception. Some of them were even acquitted, such as um, von Papen and Schacht. Um However, I believe it was ten of them that were sentenced to death. Is that right? Uh, I can't remember the can't remember the precise number, but yeah, absolutely. And I I think that you know you you have, um, you know these these are these are fair trials, and of course it's what what's always accused of. You know the losing side always thinks it's victor's justice. Yeah. You know, and what what would like to I wonder what would have happened. You know, had we lost the war, and what sort of trials Nazi Germany would have put on of, of Churchill, and what crimes that he would have been charged with, and so on. So I think that the Allies were very, very concerned yeah. that they wanted to make sure that these people had adequate defence, that, yeah. that no one could come back afterwards and say, you know, well, you did just do what Stalin wanted done at Tehran and, and, and you just lined them up against a wall and shot them. That's kind of Soviet-style justice. Yeah. And, you know, the, so people like Goering did have proper defence counsel. And also what also came across at Nuremberg was how impressive Goering was. And I know that you mentioned he he cheats the hangman by having a suicide capsule, and no one quite knows how he got that. Yeah. But Goering, before Nuremberg, was this kind of drug-addled, dipsomania, alcoholic whale of a man who had kind of lost the plot. And actually, when he was in prison and he had lost weight and he wasn't on drugs anymore, I mean, he was basically he was a junkie. His sort of yeah. kind of intellect and, and, and came back, and he was an incredibly impressive and redoubtable figure in the dock. And he and he ran rings around some of the some of the prosecution council. So, you know, in some ways, the risk with Nuremberg is that also it was a platform for some of these Nazis to sit there and justify what they had done. So, you know, and, and the world could look at it and look at Goering and go, well, hang on a minute. You know, maybe, you know, he, he's he, he's got some defense here. Um, clearly it wasn't because ultimately this is a man who had founded the Gestapo and, you know, and, and had done unspeakable and horrible things. So. But yeah, I mean, so there's a kind of double-edged sword about any of these things, you know, which you look all the way back to Hitler before he goes to Landsberg prison when he's put on trial after the, the putsch, Munich putsch. The, you know, the court is seen as an arena for him to show off, and that's a real problem. Yeah, you. this is a really interesting, um, really interesting topic, um, whether or not the Nuremberg trials were fair. And there is an argument, as you said, um, the crimes against humanity was a relatively new crime. It it hadn't existed before. There is an argument that it was unfair to indict Nazi leaders for violating laws that had not actually existed at the time 
they committed the acts they were accused. What do you think of that? I think I think that is a problem, and I, and I think that that's you know clearly in law. You know, if if I you you can't be sort of retrospectively found guilty for you know walking across a piece of grass that is now illegal to walk across. I mean that's so yeah no that that is a problem. But I think that I think the world had seen the sheer horrors of what that Nazi machine had done to people. I mean, they, 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 you know, the, the, the newsreel footage of Bergen-Belsen especially with, you know, um, emaciated, you know, corpses of largely of Jewish people being bulldozed into pits. And I'm sure you've probably seen it. And, and that still has the power to shock that imagery. I think the world has seen that and realised that, that, that you can't get away with that. You, you, there's got to be a crime that you're guilty of in some way. And I think there was this sense that not only are these legal crimes, but there, there is clearly a, a moral duty to prosecute these people, which outweighs the kind of legal nicety of whether doing what you did was technically illegal at the time you did it. Um, no, definitely. Um, and the, I think we should probably move on to the executions themselves. And there was a bit of um, controversy um, as to the method of execution, which was death by hanging. Um, however, so the death, the death sentences were carried out on 16th of October 1946 by hanging, which used the standard drop method instead of the long drop. And well, the US Army denied claims that the drop length was too short, which may cause the condemned to die slowly from strangulation instead of a quick, instead of quickly from a broken neck. Uh, I mean, what, what, what do you think of this sort of um, controversy, guy? Do you think it's um, a problem for um, those who carried out the executions? Do you think it was moral, perhaps, that they um, died? Um, for, do, you, do you think it's correct that they choked? I, I mean, I, I mean, we're, all, we're obviously entering into the, into the realms of whether I think the death penalty is is is, is an appropriate punishment, yes. and you know, and and it's it's that that the answer to that goes outside the, the remit probably in this conversation. But I think that if you are going to kill people judicially, then I think that you 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 would do well to look <laughs> as quote unquote civilized as you can by giving them a quick death. I think I think a sort of a you know the, the vengeful side of all of us I'm sure you know would 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 look at a man like um you know uh Kaltenbrunner or Stryker and these these sort of uh, horrible, nasty pieces of evil work, and, and wish them a slow, lingering, horrible, vile death. Um, uh, I'm sure there's a, there's a part of all of us which has that sort of Old Testament nastiness. But uh, at the same time, I suspect that if you are going to have these these uh, judicial killings, and maybe they should be carried out swiftly. Swiftly, I I don't think there was a massive sort of psychological impact on uh, on those carrying out these executions. I, again, I'm not actually sure. Of, uh, about that, but I really don't. I've never encountered anything which has said it was terribly upsetting. No. Uh, for the people who did it, I think a lot of people who did it had been at war. They'd seen unspeakable things anyway, and I felt, and I suspect they strongly felt this is payback. Um, you know, so I think that, yeah. I mean, I, my my opinion of the death penalty or whatever is is sort of not really here nor there for you guys. But I think that the the methods of execution. Were pretty civilized for the time. I mean, considering they could have just been lined up against a wall and shot, which is a far more messy and 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 and, and less, you know, it's a much more sort of bloody way to go. What about Rudolf Hess? He had quite a massive fall from grace, from being the deputy Führer to his dramatic plane jump 
over Scotland and seeing pretty much the rest of his life um, in prison. He was the last remaining Nazi officer dying in 1987, a full 40 years or so after the Nuremberg trials. And even in his dying age of, I don't know how old he was, in his, late, in his yeah. early 90s, what are the ethics of keeping such a fragile, weak, elderly man in such a highly high security prison that's costing thousands and thousands think, of pounds a year? Six hundred grand a year for the allies. No, I think I think I think it was keeping him there like that was largely at the request of the Russians, who were absolutely insistent. I mean, the idea that you might end up releasing the deputy Führer of the Third Reich, you know, to, to spend out his days in retirement in a, in a, in a cottage, you know, in, in outside Hamburg or wherever, I think would have annoyed a lot of people. I think it was probably right that, you know, he, he was criminal, uh, he was a criminal, and, and the Third Reich was one of the greatest criminal murderous schemes that had ever taken place. So, yeah, I, 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 I would have kept him locked up, certainly. So I have no problem with that. Uh, if it costs a lot of money, it's 600,000 still a drop in the ocean for, for four major powers who are looking after him. Um, you know, the whole of Spandau prison being taken over for one by one, one man seems a little bit excessive. They probably could have kept him somewhere else. But I think it was very symbolic. I think it was a very, I think these things are symbolic. It's to show the world, to show anybody who thinks that maybe, you know, going down the same path is is good you know, being a fascist, being, you know, subscribing to Nazism. And we see it a lot today and saying, look, you know, we lock up these guys forever. You know, that's how unacceptable it is. Uh, you know, the, the planet regards people like you as utter scum and you're just going to sit in a prison forever. I mean, Hess was obviously completely, he, he'd lost his marbles in many ways. Um, you know, his flight to Scotland um, was the act of, of, of a deluded man who, who, who had been marginalised massively. I mean, he had been massively overpromoted as deputy Fuhrer. And and I think it was kind of kind of, you know, the phrase kicking someone upstairs. He was sort of out of his depth, and so whatever we'll put him in a, in a grand sounding but somewhat meaningless post, and that's what happened to him. Um, and uh, you know, the idea that he was the sort of deputy leader of the Third Reich in reality, of course, is complete nonsense. Um, you know, that, that the, the person playing that role changes a lot. You know, it could be Himmler, it could be Goering, but it certainly was never Hess. But on on balance, yeah, I, I yeah. Keep him locked up, frankly. I think also the isolation of his captivity was obviously heightened because Dönitz was released after 10 years, Speer after 20. All these guys had sort of either died or, or had left and been released. Um, and he was obviously there by himself. Um, perhaps the, um, the humanitarian aspect of his, his captivity could be questioned. Then again, he did... He was subject. Or he um, was in favour of. We don't. We don't actually know if he was in favour of. Um, you know, the Holocaust itself, because by that point he was ousted from the inner circle. He was no. He was no longer really. Um, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, and, and so he had already sort of kind of. I mean, of course, he probably knew that there was going to be this sort of eliminationist policy being carried out. But I don't think that his complicity in that was anything like at the same level as, as someone like Goering or Himmler, of course, or Kaltenbrunner or all these yeah. other nasty bits of work. So, yeah, is he is he a bigger criminal as people like Goering? No, probably not. But you know, should he be locked up for life? Yes. I mean, Albert Speer is is one of the more interesting you know characters in the dock at Nuremberg because 
you know, he was the armaments minister and he had willingly used slave labor um, and he got 20 years for it. But his deputy, a man called Fritz Saukel, was actually hanged. Um, Speer had managed to convince the judges at Nuremberg that he was the kind of gentlemanly Nazi. Um, and, and when he comes out, you know, he, he ends up going on chat shows in Britain and he dies in London before he goes on a, a chat show called Parkinson, run by Michael Parkinson, you would have probably heard of. So, you know, it's quite weird to think of a figure like that ending up dying, you know, dying in St. Mary's Paddington. Um, you know, but you know, some, this is where some Nazis end up, you know, so it's, it's very strange. Yeah, um, and I think finally, because um, we are sort of coming to an end of the session, um, what do you think the legacy and the significance of this trial stood for um, in terms of this new international law and international condemnation of, of such crimes? It, it, it's absolutely vital because it establishes the idea of international criminal courts that, that try war criminals and people who commit these sort of crimes. It, we heard the news today um, of, of a, the new head of the Hague uh, criminal court is, is going to be a, a Brit, I forget his name. And I, and I think it just reminds us that actually these war crimes are going on today. They need to be prosecuted today. And, and, and the lessons of Nuremberg show us that. It's not victor's justice. It is, it is a way of, of saying to people who want to commit genocide that ultimately, hopefully, one day justice will catch up with you. And there is an international mechanism for doing that. And that's the legacy of Nuremberg. It establishes the idea that nations can come together and collectively try these bastards. Yeah, the Nuremberg trials were so important in the establishment of international law, international law like you say. The findings at Nuremberg led directly to the United Nations Genocide Convention of 1948 and, of course, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948, as well as the Geneva Convention. Um, so there we have it. We've looked at the fall of the Nazi Party, the ultimate end to this decade and a bit so rule of terror for many. Um, we've looked at the suicide of the vitamin D deprived Hitler underground in his Führer bunker and the trials of major Nazi officers and how they were eventually wiped from the surface of the earth. Guy, thank you so much for returning to the Historic Present podcast. Your help has been immense. Thank you so much. Um, Perhaps we can maybe have you on for a third time. No, no, well, poor you. I mean, inflict your listeners. But anyway, look, thank you for having me on. And I, I am, as I say, really impressed by what you guys are doing. Well done. Thank it's you so great. Much. And uh, I know you've had lots of other people on as well. So, yeah, no, let, let, let me know if you want me on again. In the meantime, yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very right. much. Okay, so, so far on the historic present podcast we've had two central subjects as the topic of each episode history and politics but now we're going to branch out to a third from now on every episode we're going to devote a small portion a small section of time to economics we're going to look at the latest economic news and what the world of money and economics is looking like and to help us to take us through it um, we're delighted to welcome to the historic present team, economics correspondent Show. Show, hello. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you. 
No uh, so I'll be on every week and it'll be sort of a 15 minute uh, segment on sort of like the market sentiment and analysis that I'll be doing. Exactly. Thank you for having me on. It's our pleasure. So, yeah, let's dive straight in. Okay, show, let's begin. Let's first look at the cryptocurrency market, what it's looking like now and why it's interesting at the moment. Uh, so we definitely saw potential in Bitcoin as it rose in price to around 45,000 at the time of this recording. Uh, this is most likely because of uh, Elon Musk's 1.5 billion investment yeah. into Bitcoin and um, announcing that they're going to accept Bitcoin as a form of currency and other um, and also MasterCard have also announced that they're going to accept Bitcoin as a form of currency. So, yeah, that's definitely big reasoning of why yeah, definitely. Uh, the price soared. This casts an overall question over the US dollar and other fiat currencies in general. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, cryptocurrency is the electric version of money, shall we say. I think that's the simplest way to put it. So you have the dollars and the pounds and paper, then you've got bitcoins and other forms of currency online which sees its price constantly rise and fall due to the due to the market um, yeah it's basically a form of currency that's not um sort of controlled by the government yeah so yeah it's not like they can tax it or anything that's yeah. why it's sort of you know we have governments controlling inflation and we have governments controlling the print of money but this doesn't happen with bitcoin so you mentioned elon musk there and his twitter power and how he can manipulate um the markets we'll get onto that a bit later but first i want to look at the global markets and the global currencies um because of course we all know how catastrophic 2020 was as a year it's almost every single country in the world um how has the start to 21 looked like we've seen joe biden come in as president um in the us we've seen vaccines increase talk to us a little bit about that um so we obviously we saw the positive sort of vaccine um news and biden's u.s official um fiscal stimulus sorry um where they are sort of put, uh, investing around 1.2 trillion oh, wow. into um the economy to start expanding the um sort yeah. of the journey of expanding the uh u.s economy but that sort of raises the question of inflation rates which um has affected the u.s dollar so we definitely saw uh the a weak dollar because of the sort of fiscal stimulus and the positive vaccine news so then, you know, people are beginning to think that inflation will rise yeah. uh, as the global economy expands. Yeah. So we've got all these governments, including Biden, the Biden administration and indeed Boris Johnson's government here in the UK. They've all got these plans to come back and build 
back better and stronger after the year we've just had. But as Sho hinted to there, will these plans of trillions and billions of pounds and dollars actually could cause more harm in the long term than good? Okay, Sho, we've looked at the dollar and its slight weaknesses. Um, let's go to the stock market there. Talk to us how that's looking right now. Um, stocks are actually doing uh, very well. It's at all-time highs in Wall Street. The Dow is looking strong and also other indexes are at record highs. So to all our listeners who don't know or perhaps are new to economics and the stock market, explain to us what the term different indexes or perhaps what even indexes are. Um, uh, yeah. Yes. So there's three main sort of indexes that kind of tracks the overall um U.S. stock market. There's the Dow Jones, the S&P 500, and the Nasdaq. Uh, S&P 500 is sort of a broader, bigger representation of companies, um, with various sectors, top sort of 500 companies. The Dow is probably the most important, most yeah. sort of looked at. It's, uh, 30 of the largest companies, and they tend to be blue chip uh, firms of sort of more household uh, names. The NASDAQ, however, contains uh, all the companies that trade on the NASDAQ and are mostly sort of technology internet related companies. But there are obviously, you know, it's not just techno yeah. technological uh, companies. Now, I'm going to go further to all our listeners it's who may be confused when the term stock market is said. Show, can you briefly, very, in a few sentences, explain to us what the stock market actually is? So the stock market is sort of a broad term for like, um, there's no one stock market, uh, unless you're talking about sort of the indexes, um, of like, as we mentioned before, the S&P 500, which is a collection of different um, stocks. But if you sort of talk about one stock, um, let's say Apple or something, you sort of buy at a price, um, hoping for the value of the company to go up um, and, and then hoping for the share price to go up so you can sell your stock back at a higher price, maybe so then you have that yeah. profit. And right. obviously, you know, some say it's a form of, gambling i mean it's it, i mean it is a form of gambling but it's a form of sort of uh i don't know professional gambling where yeah. there's like, an there's element of like smart guessing and manipulation that comes into play yeah to I try and... yeah i wouldn't say guessing it's it's a thing it's like uh you know any other thing like obviously there is a lot of risk involved but it's the sort of thing like, you know, risk to make more money. Yeah. But yeah, you've got to do your research and you can't just follow yeah. someone else's trades. Yeah. All right. That's great. Um, we looked at the dollar. Um, we looked at the markets. What about the pound? It rose when vaccinations were being poured all over the population. What's it looking like now, yeah. Show? So the pound sterling is doing extraordinarily well. It's broken 
above a uh, resistance. Uh, it's moved to the highest since April 2018, and it's sort of moving up in an upward channel. So all positive stimulus for the pound. Sure. What about the European markets? Uh, well, the European stocks are not doing so well. The FTSE 100 is looking relatively weak. Equally, equally France and Germany not moving with Wall Street. Um, gold is rising strongly, probably because of the sort of reflation trade. People are expecting global markets expand um, thanks to the US stimulus um, package and a positive vaccine sort of news. And this is all rising worries about inflation. So in turn, gold is taking sort of taking back the position as like an inflation trade as gold is normally sort of a safe haven for yeah. um, when assets like uh, the US dollar are weak. So that's where investors sort of dump their money into gold when currencies like US dollar are doing um, not that well. Yeah. Also, um, oil has hit 13 month highs again, probably because of the global economy recovery hopes. Okay, you've mentioned gold there, and I want to draw a little sideline to silver because a few weeks ago, silver boomed. Its price rose massively. It's like more than it has been in ever since the markets were open. And this was majorly down to the power of some people on an internet chat room and Twitter. So that leads us on to our next focus show. What on earth happened with GameStop last week? So as some of you know, the Wall Street bet group, you know, that, uh, what's this, a Reddit group. Yeah. Um, so they start, basically started buying um, GameStop, which in turn, like, sort of stopped out a lot of the investors who were shorting the GameStop stock. They were, they were, they weren't happy about that. No. So, but it wasn't really a long-term trade. I mean, it was a matter of time um, before people started to see the real value of GameStop. So, essentially, um, it went down just as quickly as gone up. So, there's no sort of long-term view of GameStop. At least that's what I think. Yeah. Also, yeah. I think a lot of people were sort of hoping Wall Street bets would sort of knock out institutions and change markets forever. So yeah, that that's that doesn't that doesn't really seem like it's happening. Yeah, I mean, uh, it that. was huge when it first happened because these people on Reddit, almost as a joke, save this company from GameStop was basically dead, essentially, and suddenly it's I, but the, yeah, but that's soaring. that's the problem. It it didn't really save the company because it was no, sort it of a flash trade. It, it just went up yeah. and then down quick, just as quickly. And what they did was essentially illegal. Like yeah. it, that's a form of market manipulation. Yeah. Um, but it's not like they can sort of, there's too many on the group. They can't catch all of them. And one uh, man... But it is looking ugly. Um, uh, essentially, there's probably a lot of lawsuits against uh, the stockbrokers like uh what's what's it called uh robin hood 
Yeah, Robinhood. Because they essentially stopped trading for um for like GameStop, which angered a lot of people. And one man in particular saw this right um was played a huge part in this rise, Elon Musk, after he tweeted about it, the stocks only soared further. Okay, show. We're gonna have to draw a close there. Would you like to summarize quickly for us what we've covered? Uh, so just to summarize everything that uh, we've sort of said, uh, US stocks at record highs, Euro stocks not doing so well with the Germany and France, uh, US dollar weak, uh, the Euro is up, the sterling's up, Aussie dollar's up, gold's up, and oil is up. Most of the currencies are up pretty much because of how weak the dollar is moving. So the dollar is at the moment affecting of the other currencies the other currencies are sort of strengthening against the dollar and yeah and the dollar is weakening because as i said before the fiscal stimulus positive vaccine news yeah. which is sort of causing uh inflation to rise also oh yeah and then i and then the dollar also down because of the disappointing nfp um that came out on Friday, which is a really big market mover for currencies, especially. Great. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, well, that concludes our first ever economic section. And we will be very excited to have you on again next week. I'll be there next week. Okay, so we're going to move on to the political section of today's episode. And it is quite a big one today. Um, we are not joined only by two guests like we were last week. We've got six of us here. Um, we've got a variety <laughs> of political views, to say the least. We've got Oliver, Dylan, Alex, and Joseph. Hello to you all. Hello. 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 Um, thank you very much for coming on. Um, we hope to spark some good debates today make it interesting so this is what's going to happen each person will have around 30 seconds to start a debate kick fire an argument about any topic they like um any questions they want to ask they can and then for the next five or so minutes the floor will be asked mics will be opened and anyone can come back at that at that debate starter and we'll have a full argument on our hands, I guess. Okay, so who shall we come to first? Do we have any volunteers? Dylan, yep. 30 seconds, okay. take it away. So uh, my question is, do you think that all universities should be made free in the UK? Um, and there to be no entrance requirements for that. Okay. So we have our first question. Do you think all universities should be free in the UK? If anyone has an initial point of information they would like to raise, or I can just raise... Okay, Joseph, what do you want to say? Uh, I think baseline, yes. I think uh, uh, the, they should be free. Um, and then you said something about uh, like academic qualifications you shouldn't need. And I think as, as we have in the system today, you have different levels of universities based off, mm. you know, previous educational sort of experience. 
I think, you know, if you look at other countries around Europe, you know, they have free universities or at least like heavily like uh, government funded. So, you know, nowhere near as expensive as in the UK. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, you know, they, they should be free at, like schools. Um, you'd often hear the point that like it would, you know, it meant it would mean a university degree wouldn't mean anything. But I think there would still be the sort of these better universities, you know, even though they're free, you still have to have the academic qualifications to, to get in. Dylan, do you have an initial response to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, my main my main point about the lack of academic qualifications um, as an entrance requirement would be that if we were to make more free, looking at countries like um, Germany, for example, and, and France, where their universities, as you said, Joseph, were either you know, they're either completely free or very cheap. There's a kind of there's not much difference in in you know in grandeur between the top universities and the bottom universities. It's, it's that um, you know, it's that baseline. Some universities might um, may excel more than others, but if they, if they were all free, if they were all the same kind of level, and that would be a high level given the like the academics we have in this country, I think that everyone, no matter um, you know uh, economic background or how well they did in school, should have the right to that same level of education. Yeah. Okay, Oliver. So I agree with Joseph about the fact that there should perhaps be some academic requirements because if there weren't, then you'd have people getting into universities that maybe they were not able to meet the academic requirements in. And I think already though they do a good job if for people from disadvantaged backgrounds, they perhaps have lower entry requirements, which I think is correct and should be kept. But I think having no entry requirements is maybe it's a, a step too far, perhaps. Okay. Um, I'd like to make a point as well. Um, in, in, in regards to making universities, you know, very cheap um, or even free, who uh, pays for it in the end? Where, where does this the money for the government? I asked uh, one. Ask one, one of you. Where, where, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, Joseph, you go ahead. All right. I, I mean, it sort of takes you into a, a larger topic of you know taxes and how the government should properly allocate the money through taxes. I mean, if, if you look at some of the sort of, yeah, so the basic answer to your question, I think would be, you know, in, in what we have at the moment through government taxes. And then it's just about, you know, reallocating and sort of, yeah, it sort of leads into another topic of, you know, where does this money come from and whatnot. But I think just, you know, it's, it's not a simple question, but reallocation of funds from, you know, where it's not necessarily as needed, because, you know, every, every person should be entitled to education and it's where where do you draw the line at basic education and like you know higher education alex well, when if you look at the um, nordic countries or the nordic model where education is free um average gdp per capita average income per person it's higher and if income is higher then surely people are in a higher tax bracket i mean discussing taxes again a whole separate topic but you know, if we have more educated people, more doctors, they're on average getting paid higher. They're adding more to the economy. So surely uh, there can be more benefit in that. I think, yeah, I think it, it feeds back into itself, right? Because if you give everyone in the country as the same higher higher level of education than they do right now, right? Instead of leaving at a secondary school, giving everyone the free education to go on to university, you know, that will result in more percentage of the working population being um, more qualified, which will, you know, as high level jobs um more income coming in 
And that's obviously in the best uh, interest of the country. So we should do whatever we can to ensure that. But but do you think it's this kind of idea that you get what you pay for effectively? Do you think that the education, um, the quality of education could be hindered perhaps um, with a reduction of um, fees? Well, uh, no, because in, 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 my, in my hypothetical nation, it would be, uh, you know, it, they'd be receiving the same amount of money that they do now. It would be the same quality. It would just be free for the free for the person, free for the taxpayer, free for the student. Yeah, I actually agree with uh, Dylan and Alex in some ways there. So I think that I don't think the quality would go down if you keep the entrance requirements. And I think it actually sounds like a decent idea in principle. The problem is I think a lot of universities in this country would go bust if you completely scrap the fees. And I'm not, I think you need to like, I mean, I just don't think it would necessarily work because I think the universities require the fees to sort of stay afloat. I think so just, yeah, going back to the, the German model, um, they've obviously, they're a bigger country than I suppose, area and population, and they've got much, like, much less universities. If we, if we did dismantle some of the edu- like, institutions, cut down the number of universities, we could improve on the quality and also lower the cost for the person. Okay, so Oliver and Charlie, if universities weren't to go completely free what new initiatives could the government take to make it more to make higher education more available to those who perhaps can't afford it at the moment i think i think i guess what oxford and cambridge are doing right now with state schools um allowing more state schools uh state school kids to um to go into the university whereas in the past a lot more private school kids have um got in and i think that's definitely something that should happen grades should be lowered for so are you saying uh, positive discrimination is the only way to yeah I yeah think I, I, I think leveling up and i think leveling up is a good thing so yeah. i think that's not yeah. changing the cost it's not like they're lowering the uh the the fees because of these people coming from no, no, so you, give, you, give, you give bursaries what, what i'm think... asking is the people who don't apply for oxbridge in the first place because they they can't how do you make that a, a fairer um, system? We give bursaries to people that can't afford it, and then you make kids that can afford it pay higher fees. That's I think that's just simple. How, how are you going to measure that? Well, by, by income tax and family's income tax. That's so wait, but just in that model, surely the same logic applies to um, you know to to, to everything. If if people shouldn't pay tax if they're yeah if, if if they're lower down the income if, if you're going to make that argument then you can go to the whole point of uh anyone who personally owns two hundred thousand pounds a year should be paid should be taxed 40 percent more heavily than you know theoretically everyone else um i think that the whole the whole point the whole point of my motion was how can you make the biggest percentage of uh people leaving secondary school get into uh, go to university and I'm talking about the people that literally cannot afford the £9,000 a year. That is the base, base rate. Okay, so that is the end of the five minutes allocated to that. Dylan, thank you very much. Quick show of hands, I suppose. Let's take a vote. Um, all well, no, in favour. Yeah. I, I don't know the actual practicalities of how this would actually work, but all in favour of making university tuitions free raise 
All right, as as I as I could have yeah. guessed, it's the three against two. Um, well, we were always going to have that when we had an unbalanced, an unbalanced political views. Okay, next, Oliver, let's hear it. This might be a bit of a longer question, but um, so um, Labour haven't got over forty percent of the vote in a with a socialist candidate. So basically, anyone other than Blair in a general election since 1970 and even then they lost what makes you think people have any kind of in this country at the moment have any kind of appetite for socialism and if they don't then do you not think it'd be better to focus on being a bit more moderate to appeal to more people and then maybe be able to enact your policies once you're in power so is this basically a is socialism fit for the uk question or it's more like are you do you not think it's better to come across as more moderate? Okay. Yeah. Joseph, straight out there. Go. Well, you know, you sort of hear this quite a lot, you know, oh, oh, don't be too extreme in, in your political climate because you won't get voted in. Um, I think in the UK that's true. And you see a lot of sort of, you know, even Corbyn, who, what, 40 years ago when he was first getting into politics, was essentially an, a rampant socialist in terms of his policy ideas. And then, you know, to, to actually get voted in, like you said, he sort of had to dial back on his on his on his sort of extremities on on socialist policy change. Um, I mean, he was he was still a socialist when he was uh, opposition leader, but he you know, he obviously had to dial it back to appeal to the people. And I think, you know, your, fa your, your question sort of included the fact that, yeah, you, I don't but I don't think you should have to be moderate to. Well, you, you sort of have to because that's the climate we're in. But ideally, you know, people could actually, you know, acknowledge the view and not just sort of shoot it down because of, it, of its socialist. Dylan? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think Ollie's point of, uh, you know, what what is the appeal of a socialist candidate and like, should Labour be more moderate, just actually get more votes? I think that in the next general election, when, you know, people are aged, they're going to be voting, um, there's going to be, a, a massive, massive red wave of people because of, um, you know, it's young people more and more that are getting affected because of austerity, because of because of so long of having Tories in government, you know. Um, the, the the rise of, you know, Gen Z left-wing type of politics, it's, 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 been, it's been massive. Um, and I don't think actually going forward with our generation, generations, you know, coming... Uh, next that it will be necessary to moderate socialism because people are you know it's, it's getting to the point where we actually might need it okay dyson i'm going to come to you and hear your response to what joseph and dylan said and also i asked the question to um oliver and charlie afterwards is this gen gen z love for socialism a unique thing or will the younger people in every every generation always turn to leftist views oliver so firstly in response to joseph's uh, response i see what you mean when you say that you shouldn't have to hide it but then it kind of comes both ways because i'm sure anyone who's a socialist probably wouldn't particularly like the sight of people like ukip or the brexit party so you sort of have to be careful when you say they shouldn't have to hide it because i i'm sure you don't want that side of politics to come in to parliament or anything like that and secondly to jonah um i think it's a bit of both i think our generation is possibly more left-wing than previous generations at our age but i don't think massively massively 
significantly. I think a ma- big reason for it is actually the previous question about tuition fees and things like that and the rise of social media. And I think as we get older, I think people become less left-wing, but perhaps more so than previous generations. That's a very good point. Uh, well, I, Charlie, follow up on that. I, th- I, think, I think that this idea of social media, the fact that the left have kind of taken this sort of moral high ground where they've kind of said this is you know this these ideas that they have seem very idealistic and they're very appealing to the youth of this population who appear to you know have had enough of the austerity and then they want a a new government i think the practicalities of socialism is it's it's just not it's not a practical thing it's it's just not something that i think this country needs I think this country is in a very good state at the moment. Obviously, we've had a worldwide pandemic, so I think it's very difficult to to judge you know, a government based on such extreme circumstances. Charlie, Charlie, we're in the middle of one of the worst economic crashes of the yeah, last maybe 10 years. It's a good thing's not great. I don't think you can say we're in a good state at the moment. <laughs> great, great. No, 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 no. But the world is not in a great place. That's my point. The yeah, world but is neither, are we, neither are we. Neither are we. Neither no, either, no. No, but it's all relative. Then again, then again, it's all relative, isn't it? Are you telling me the Labour a Labour government would have done a lot better than the, the Conservative that wasn't government? The question. Okay, um, Alex. What do you mean? Alex. Yeah, well, I want to discuss both the rise of the right, the right and the left. So the left in our generation, we're the ones who's get, who are going to be most affected by firstly this pandemic response. Okay, I'm not going to get onto that topic because that's going to get um, go on a tangent, but. Um, through our lifetimes, what we've seen is the gap between um, worker productivity and worker wages widen. We're not be, we're not being paid for what we're producing, and things like the falling rate, the or the tendency of race profit to fall, which is an economic phenomenon talked about by both Smith and Marx and many other economists, and it's proven true. Or the rise of monopoly capitalism, where we're losing our choice and we're paying into bigger and bigger companies. Where does it end? Is it sustainable? I don't think so. Whereas on the other hand, the rise of the right likely comes from the media sentiment against things like immigrants and blaming other people for the economic issues rather than thinking that something new needs to come, which is, although an extreme example, like fascism, it came in a time of economic downturn to try and reset the economy by blaming Jewish people. So, you know, they both kind of rise simultaneously as a solution to a similar problem. Okay, we got three hands up and we've only got a minute and a bit left of this section. So if you think you can summarise what you're about to say in a few words, go for it, Joseph. All right, I was just going to say, like, yeah, I think social media is a key part of just not not exactly the left, but just extre- more extreme uh, social, uh, more extreme political views just off the, the simple facts of social media where you can sort of hide behind a screen, you know, he, um, Charlie's talked about sort of people having to advocate that they're socialist and they should they shouldn't have to hide it. And on social media, you can sort of hide behind a screen without yeah uh, uh, being attacked. Dylan. Yeah. So um, my 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 closing point was you know um, despite how privileged some of us here and some of us you know in the areas that we live are, it's still going to be the case that we will never be able to buy a house in a, in a city like London right ever in our lifetime, matter no matter how hard we work unless we work in something like investment banking or hedge fund banking, right? And I think it's that realization that will actually push more and more people to the left as they grow up, um, because there just there isn't enough money, you know. Right, Oliver, give us a give us your closing 
points and thoughts? Uh, I think actually more than social media, maybe in terms of the left, but in terms of the further right, I actually think the newspapers definitely do fuel it. But also, um, I think people outside of London perhaps may actually turn to it a bit more over socialism. And I'm not saying that's a good at all, but I think we should still be careful saying that extreme positions on either side should be welcomed because they shouldn't be. Okay. It's a bit dangerous to say so. Oliver, and thank you very much. Joseph or Alex next? Um, okay, well, I thought I would argue against um, one of Jonah's favourite things to say, but it's quite a popular thing to say on the right. Um, so there's a common phrase, the free of the market, the free of the people. I would like to discuss against that because I don't agree with it. Okay, I want so desperately to contribute this, but I will not. I will refrain myself. Um, I might not be able to soon, but for now, I'm not going to take part in this. I think it's, I think it's fine. You can contribute to it. Charlie, do you want to say something? No, that's fine. I'm saying you can contribute to it. I don't want to. <laughs> Oliver. Um, I, I think the free of the market, the free of the people applies in the main, because if you're not constrained by various like i mean there was a time in the 1970s when they had 98 percent income tax and people would take and you take money out of the country you were not allowed to take more than 60 pounds and you'd come back and it would have uh, you'd have spent some money and you'd end up with actually having more value of money when you came back because the pound was doing so badly and that sort of gives people very low mobility so i think and that was under basically the closest thing we've had to socialism in this country so I think the free of the market, the free of the people probably does apply as it gives people the chance to improve them, their life and also not go on holiday and then get persecuted, uh, persecuted prosecutors um, for coming back with more than £60, which just seems ridiculous. Dylan? I think like the, um, the well, it sounds like the base, the base point of, um, you know, capitalism and, and the whole point of the free market is that it's easy, right? Because... The only way that capitalism has really survived up until now is because we, you know, from from like the 50s, 60s on, we could outsource all our labor, same as America, on a massive scale. It's a place where it's cheaper. Like they, We would not be able to have the same goods and luxuries as we do now if not for, you know, the lack of child labor laws up until the last 10 years in places like Indonesia, where you could pay a seven-year-old like 50p a week to make some Nike trainers. We just wouldn't have these things. Um, I think that, free the market free the people only applies to the people consuming it does not actually apply to people producing because ultimately capitalism can only thrive in situations of um of oppression and um you know underrepresentation in payment okay alex i'm going to come to you talk to me about what you think of the points oliver made and also if free the market doesn't mean free the people explain to me why a stricter market would mean free of the people. I'm not pro free market, but that's kind of a. I'm not pro market. That's kind of a step separate discussion. But um, what I was going to say to Oliver's point is, in um, classical liberal literature, from that is quite old. Uh, liberalism or liberty is made up of two components, and that's freedom to and freedom from. Okay, so let's say we have a free market. You have the freedom from being prevented to do what you want or you have the freedom to engage in the economic activity you want but there are many more tangible freedoms like healthcare like housing like education that are much more important to quality of life than just the freedom to trade 
Um, yeah, that's another point I can make for Fair enough. Joseph? Well, so what? Well, Oliver took a sort of extreme of, of market regulation with this ridiculously high income tax. And I was sort of, if you take a look at that extreme, if you look at another extreme, so, you know, in this country, we do have regulations on the market, as do most countries around the world. And you hear a lot of people saying, oh, well, that's not real capitalism because there's regulations on the market, therefore it's not free market and whatnot. But if you actually, you know, a free market does, you know, and you can debate this, whether a free market would enable all monopolies, because that's su supposedly what the sort of regulation on the market does at the moment. It essentially stops, you know, and it doesn't even work that well, because at the moment you sort of see like what Nestle or their parent company, or whatever, owning sort of most of the sort of confectionery brands. And it just, it means, you know, the monopolies, I think you, you can argue whether the free market creates them, but I think you can say that monopolies are inherently bad because they just, sort of mean that the, the the monopoly can drive up the price as high as they want because you know competition essentially keeps the prices down because if you just you know have a monopoly putting up the price what what's what's to keep them keeping it down if there's no other competition that's offering something cheaper does anyone not agree that a free open capitalist market allows anyone to become successful and rich well, well, it doesn't because the the inheritance of a market under capitalism, you have to put up capital. It, you're, you're 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 sort of yeah. The free the market, the free the people would be true if everyone had excess capital to contribute to the market. The majority of people in this country, well, okay, not the majority, but the people who are sort of struggling to put food on the table, they can't say, oh, you know what, I'm going to go out and you know invest fifty pounds into this company because it'll you know do well and I'll make money. They're thinking about tomorrow's meal and they don't have that sort of excess capital to invest into the market. If you have a hundred pounds and there are two situations, you're living in a closed market or no market as Alex wants, or a free market, are your opportunities to get richer bigger in the free market without a hundred pounds or the no market? Well obviously the free market, but I think that also raises the question, you know, why uh, Why does anyone, if, if you've got £100 in a closed market, why do you need to get richer? It's a closed market, you, in, you know, a closed market situation. Um, People always want to be richer, won't they? I know, I know. But I mean, think think about it. If, if we were given free healthcare, free education, free food and water and free shelter, then what would be the point? It's you know, human nature. No, I think people are generally quite aspirational. And I think it's better to level up and try and improve the lives of people who are maybe not quite as well off as some others. But the way to do that is not to just basically say, right, you can't be have over £100 or else that's bad and therefore we're going to tax you 100% if you want to have over £100 and that's basically a closed market and then everyone's just equally poor. You'd rather have that some people are slightly richer than others. And I think the aim is to sort of make sure the gap isn't so wide that it has like massive inequality to try cut inequality but not completely because otherwise you're just gonna end up with everyone being poor because it's not possible for everyone to be rich okay very quickly to charlie then alex summarize well it's a bit of a it's a bit of a uh, silly argument in a sense because you'd rather the gap you can't see this on the on the audio but if you were to look at the video the, the gap is you'd rather the gap to be here than the gap to be up there right you'd rather the poor be poorer but the rich be poorer as well, but much poorer than the rich be richer and the poor be richer as well. So everyone's living a better life. Yes, there's inequality, 
But inequality is what keeps human nature going. It keeps it's how we have aspirations. It's how we have competition. It's healthy competition to be the best. In capitalism, it's ev- anyone, not everyone. Anyone, not everyone. I think everyone wanted to go around the human nature discussion. I thought I'd actually discuss it. I personally don't believe human nature is a frigid thing. I think it's uh, based on on material conditions. However, if you do want to argue that human nature is greedy, then why should we have an economic system where human nature and human greed can lead to such wealth inequality? Why don't we have a system where the greed leads to a better society, first of all? And second of all, there is incentive beyond like financial incentive. Uh, Uh, money-related incentives have proven to work significantly better because workers generally want to work the least amount of time for the most amount of pay. But if there's incentives like, you know, like, you know, just things like human hormones that you get from winning competitions or feeling like you've succeeded have proven to be better. Okay. Is that even possible? All right, hang on, hang on, Oliver. We're running out of time. We've been recording for about half an hour already. So, Joseph, if you would like to go for an extra short, quick fire, extra rapid cool. argument, that would be yeah. great. Um, it, it sort of leads on from what we've just said. I mean, it's do you think that capitalism breeds or limits innovation and the sort of moving forwards of products and, you know, the sort of technology and you know, predominant, you know, life-saving and life-improving technologies and services. Okay, Dylan. Uh, yes, but only in only because uh, of nations or people trying to compete with each other and trying to prove they're better. I don't think that capitalism in itself um, breeds uh, breeds innovation. It's 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 the rewards and the, the capitalist society around like that we live in that rewards it. I, yeah, I know that's a contradiction in itself, but um, I think that if if we weren't if we weren't to have a capitalist society, there would still be innovation because instead of the drive being money, the drive would be to improve society just for the sake of improving society for making the quality of life better. So it's it's not it's it's the reward. It's the fact that it's that we live in a capitalist society that breeds innovation i think with the lack of capitalism there would still be innovation dylan i totally understand that point um mm-hmm. oliver I, I actually agree, i agree with dylan basically in short because i think uh, we've learned about this in geography that a 20th century swedish economist called Bozerup basically said that um humans will always uh, create technology to meet challenges such as like um i don't know food insecurity or something like that and i think I think in this case, I don't. I think maybe a capitalist system is better for it. But I don't think if we had a socialist system, I think if it was run properly, perhaps, like i.e., not starving your own citizens, uh, perhaps, yeah, it could still definitely be achieved. So I don't think it's necessarily because of capitalism. I think it's more about the way it's run because you can have people starving in capitalist countries too. Alex, very quickly. I think there's two issues with um, innovation under capitalism and uh, those are patents and monopolies. So, for example, patents, we've seen what happens with international cooperation and general cooperation with the COVID vaccine. And you can also see this in Shen, um, Shenzhen with Hua um, Qiangbei market, where um, new technology is produced every day super cheaply because they don't have patents. And they don't have that um, intellectual property rights that other countries 
um, do. And the, it's a similar thing with monopolies, as in, you know, once capitalism reaches its late stage where monopolies kind of inevitably form, um, there is there is basically no incentive to invest money in technologies when that's a loss of profits, when you could just keep doing what you're doing and there's no competition. Charlie, 30 seconds, and then to Joseph to summarize. Yeah, so I just got a question, actually, is do you think this idea of a centralised um, economy under a more socialist government, do you think that that leads to tyranny? Well, a little bit off topic. Um, Joseph, <laughs> um, okay. do you maybe want to answer I mean, that question whilst summarising your argument at the same time? Yeah, I'll try. I, I might just split it in two. Um, yeah. I'd say that, you know, if you, if, you think, if you think about the amount of people trapped in poverty at the moment, unable to get above the poverty line, you know, you, you think about, you know, all these ideas that humans have, technologies that people develop because of their own, the virtue of their own minds. If you think about that and you think about all of these uh, people who have those ideas but don't have the material conditions or facilities to implement their ideas, that, that doesn't breed innovation. While there is innovation, there can always be more if you get people out of poverty. You know, uh, and to the to the to the tyranny one, I mean, you're probably gonna what draw on past examples of say, I don't know, what the USSR or m any other socialist attempting state or whatnot. And if you think, I mean, you you can you can go over the sort of history of past attempted socialist governments and what, and sort of you know critique them and all of that. But I think you know no t leads to tyranny, not inherently, you know. The USSR, throughout most of its existence, was trying not to get invaded by the West, as you know most of these countries do. So, a socialist government, which you know advocates to you know uh, stop you know Im imperialism, they, they have two choices. Two choices: they either disarm themselves, like a lot of South American countries do, you know, are invaded or you know a coup staged in them by the US. You know, it's happening in almost every South American country and they fall, or they do what the USSR did essentially and sort of try to, you know, outgun the US throughout, you know, the Cold War and essentially most of its, its, its existence. And then in that sense, people will always say, oh, well, it just leads to tyranny. It's like, if, if all of these imperialist nations didn't try to impose and invade, then they could actually just get on with it without having to waste their revenue and economy on trying to, you know, win an arms race. Um, so... I am going to have to stop it there, because if not, we will <laughs> just go on talking for hours. Um, thank you all so much for coming on. It has been fun. Perhaps, Charlie, maybe next time you can chair it so I can perhaps get more involved. Um, so thank you to Joseph, Oliver, Dylan and Alex. Your time has been very much valued. And maybe we'd hope to see you on again sometime soon. Thank you very much. Yeah, cheers for having us. Thank you. That concludes episode eight of the Historic Present podcast. If you'd like to get involved and perhaps join one of our political sections, then do get in touch. Contact us via at the Historic Present pod on Instagram or via email at the Historic Present pod at yahoo.com.